about the backstory, and we'll talk a little bit about the results of the backstory. Genesis chapter 26, verses 17 and 18. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us, and that you would show us ourselves, and that you would show us our Savior, that you would fill us, O Lord, with your Holy Spirit. If we're to see things in the Word of God, it must be because we've been given eyes by the Spirit and ears by the Spirit, for flesh and blood cannot know these things in our sinful state. So be with us, O Lord, and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's my custom to let the first sermon in the new year be a standalone sermon. And that's because the new year is a time for taking stock and it's a time for review and looking backwards as well as looking forward. My wife has recently become the custodian of our New Year's Eve practices and she has us through the, through the year, we'll Uh, When we think of it on a Sunday night, we'll take little slips of paper and we'll write down what we were thankful for, what was challenging in uh, that given week, and then we'll put it in a jar. And we'll collect those over the period of a year, and and then on New Year's Eve, we'll read them. And then there's a paper with some questions, 20 questions on it that she hands out, and we fill it out for 2021 in this past uh, uh, Saturday night. And then we drag out the one from last year and look what the concerns of our heart were then. And we just see what God has done and what time has passed and what time has uh, healed and what time has not healed. So it's a time in which we might think about putting right the things that have gone wrong, you know, your diet or your exercise plan or your tongue. Um, And so the first sermon of the new year is, is also one which Um, I kind of want to have a little bit of a bite to it. I want you to think about what needs to change in this new year. There's supposed to be a a note of challenge in it. And it's a summons to, to reconsider our path as a part of the body of Christ and to ask God if he would have us to do anything whatsoever differently than we've been doing it. Now, this morning, I would like to have you consider an episode in the life of our spiritual forefather, Isaac. Isaac is a man in covenant relationship with Almighty God, just as his father Abraham had been. And the New Testament tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7 that the one who has the faith of Abraham, the one who believes on God and it's credited to him as righteousness, is a true child of Abraham. I can remember when I was a kid singing that song, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had, and I am one of them and so are you. And I'm like, I'm not Jewish. Why am I singing this song? It's because of Galatians 3 and verse 7 that we are spiritually the children of Abraham. And so Isaac then is our spiritual forefather too. And Isaac is a type, if you will, of the church, the people of God called out of the world to be in covenant relationship 
with God, to love Him and serve Him and exalt Him. Now, there are times when the Scriptures will take an episode in the life of a person and they will present it out of order, out of the narrative order. And Genesis 26 seems to be one of these places. The events that we talk about here in Genesis 26 did not take place after the events described in Genesis 25. They couldn't have for various reasons that I won't go into today. But Genesis 26 opens up with a famine in the land. And the most probable cause of that famine, of course, would be a drought, a lack of rainfall. Now, Isaac is a shepherd. He has flocks and herds. And grass for grazing quickly becomes unavailable. And the grass that is available is of a very low quality. And they need more and more of it while there's less and less of it to be had. And of course, with a drought, there would have also been a general failure of the grain harvest as well. So there would be no bread for the household probably very little oil or wine either since the trees would have been stressed and the vineyards would have been stressed by the heat and the drought. So Isaac decides that he's going to do what his father Abraham had done when there was a drought and a famine in his days. He decides he's going to head for Egypt. And that made a lot of sense because Egypt's agricultural cycle is not dependent so much on the rains. Egypt relied on the spring flooding of the Nile to renew and to fertilize the soil, and then they had a system of irrigation ditches to water the fields from the waters of the Nile. So they had grain when nobody else did. And as he heads down to Egypt, he gets to a place called Gerar, which is on the way, and God comes to him, and God says, no, I do not want you to go down to Egypt Instead, I want you to sojourn for a while here in Gerar. Now, sojourn means to stay for a little while. It means to kind of camp there for a bit. Now, Gerar, if you're going to stay in, in Israel, was on the fertile plain, and so it would have been a pretty good area. It's, it's in an area which we know today as the Gaza Strip. It's kind of in the southeast of the nation of Israel. And Gerar was in the land of the Philistines. The Philistines, of course, are, are pagan people. They're worshipers of the false god Dagon, as well as many other false gods and goddesses. And, and they are a type of the world and of the worldlings. And so the Lord tells Isaac to dwell in the land of Gerar, to sojourn there. And both of those words imply a temporary residency. But when we get to verse 9 of chapter 26, it says that Isaac had settled there, which means that he kind of liked it. He kind of wanted to settle down. Life was pretty good here. And we weren't told how long he was there, but in verse 8 of chapter 26, it mentions that he had been there, quote, a long time. And in verse 12, it tells us that he took up farming there. He rented a piece of ground and he planted and he sowed, and he reaped, and he had an extraordinarily abundant harvest. The, the scripture said that he harvested 100-fold 
So each seed he sowed produced 100 pieces of grain. Now, just by way of comparison, archaeologists have unearthed many agricultural records from this area because people were very preoccupied with how much food there was on hand and which fields produced the most and the best. And, and so we have, we have a lot of agricultural little fragments of, of agricultural records. And, uh, and in the very fertile parts of this region, a good field would produce between 25-fold and 50-fold. In a, in a year. And the man who rented this land to Isaac would have known very well what that ground could produce in both a good year and a bad year. If I go to my father-in-law who has a farm in Iowa and I say, what do you usually get on the top ground and the bottom ground? He'll know average and he'll know what he got last year and he'll know what the five-year average is. And, and that's just important information to know. And this guy would have known that too that owned this field. And, uh, and so he rents it to Isaac, and he gets this amazing news that Isaac's gotten a hundredfold yield. And he would have known that it wasn't the seed, it wasn't the, the ground, it wasn't the rainfall. Nobody else got that kind of yield in a year, so it must have been that God was with him. But it wasn't just his farming that God blessed. God, God blessed his flocks and his herds, and they multiplied. And the numbers of his herdsmen and the household servants also multiplied, and he grew very wealthy, it says. He grew wealthy because the blessing of God was upon him, and the Philistines began to envy him, and they also began to fear him. So much so that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines himself, comes to Isaac and says, go away. Go away from us, he says, for you are much mightier than we. And so Isaac strikes his tent for the first time in who knows how long, and he moves his whole operation a little bit away from the town of Gerar to the valley of Gerar, and he discovers there that he has a very serious problem. A cow needs about 24 gallons of water a day, and she needs twice that if she's lactating and feeding a calf. A sheep needs about a gallon and a half to two gallons of water a day, and she needs three to four if she's lactating. A goat needs two to three gallons and four to six if she's got a kid. And a person working in the heat needs at least a gallon a day, and there's no water. And Isaac needs to find water, and not just a little bit. He needs probably to find several thousand gallons of water a day in a place where there is no water. It's not optional. He's not looking for a luxury product. It's a necessity. Without water, his flocks and his herds will die. And then the people that he has responsibility for will start dying too. And so the situation is water or death. Water or death. And it's here that we're told something interesting. You see, the, the Philistines had been friendly with Isaac's father Abraham as well. 
And in Genesis chapter 21, we find Abraham making a covenant with who, a person who might be the father or grandfather of this Philistine king, whose name is also Abimelech. Um, Abimelech simply means my father is king. So you could see how every king's son would say, my name's Abimelech because my father is king. And so uh, we don't know if it's the same Abimelech. A little later on, we find out he's got a guy with him named Phil Call as well. And they promise to do Abraham good. And Abraham makes a covenant with them and he promises to do good to them. But the minute Abraham dies, their cards are shown for what they are. Because the minute Abraham dies, the Philistines immediately go and plug the wells that Abraham had digged for his flocks. They plug them with earth and with debris. It's interesting, isn't it? They apparently had no need of the water themselves, or they would have just taken the wells and used them. They seem to have been a farming and a fishing culture and not much for shepherding and animal husbandry. But, so these wells were not useful to them. They weren't useful apparently in the place that they were for farming. They were only useful for flocks and herds. So they plugged the wells and they plugged these wells to keep Abraham's offspring from using them ever again. And they say to him, we don't want you here among us in their plugging of those wells. Now, Abraham had done them no wrong, and Isaac had done them no wrong either. Their hatred was irrational, and it was irrational as their fear as well. And out of that hatred and fear, they plugged up the wells that Abraham had dug for his own flocks and herds years earlier, and then they told Isaac, it's time for you to move along now, and we'll be up on the hillside watching your flocks and herds drop dead from lack of water, and that will make us happy because we will see you becoming poorer by the minute, as a matter of fact. It was an act of cruelty and an act of hatred against God's chosen under the guise of friendship. And Isaac had been a little bit foolish. He had believed their offers of friendship for a long time, and as a result, he had long overstayed his welcome among them, in much the same way as his cousin Lot had done. Lot had chosen to sojourn near the heathen city because it seemed to be a place of plenty and safety, and then we find him end up staying in the city and enjoying the seeming esteem and respect from the men of Sodom, and there really was only a thin veneer of that, and beneath that was hatred and fear and contempt. And when push came to shove, it came out and they said, who are you to tell us what to do? We'll treat you just like we're going to treat these angels when we're done with them. And so we notice that they started doing this the minute Abraham died, though Isaac had not settled there and would not settle there for some years after that. Loved ones, this is a, a pattern for us. We are sojourners in this world. This world belongs to the Philistines right now. It's not our home. Someday it will be. Someday God will set everything right and there will be a new heavens and a new earth and we will dwell in the promised land. But for now, we wander here. We're sojourners. The, the Bible tells us this in, in several different ways. If you've got your scriptures on your lap, open to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And verse 29. How are, 
are we supposed to live in the world? Well, Paul tells us. 1 Corinthians 7, 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Peter tells us something quite similar in 2 Peter in chapter 3. And if you're feeling rambunctious, you can turn there. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, this state of affairs, we, we have to live here. We need to do certain things. We need to own certain things. You got to have pants to put on in the morning and a warm jacket and a place to sleep and a car to drive and food for your belly. You need all those things. And that's okay. But you don't spend all your time and your energy on those things. You know, today's Christians spend a lot of time mucking around in Gerar, accumulating worldly wealth and possessions. And all of these things are fine in and of themselves, but they are destined to perish with the use. And we shouldn't set our hearts on them, and we shouldn't pay as much attention to them as we do. Now, you may ask yourself, why in the world did God bless Isaac in his disobedience since it's becoming more and more clear that Isaac shouldn't have stayed there as long as he did? Well, friends, first of all, I will tell you that material wealth and success are not always a sign that God is pleased with you. In fact, often it's not a sign of that at all. Jesus told a parable about that, didn't he? He told a parable about a certain man whose fields produced so abundantly that his barns couldn't hold it all. And he says, what, what shall I do? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and I'll store up everything I've done. And, and then I'll just sit back and enjoy my life and say, you know, self, you, you've got many goods laid up for many years now. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God comes to him and says, thou fool, this night thy soul will be required of thee. And who will get all of this stuff that you've accumulated? You're just going to leave it behind. It's just a fact of history that material prosperity and genuine spiritual revival are never found together. It's also a fact that very often a spiritual coldness and a spiritual deadness will overtake a lively Christian when he suddenly begins to prosper in the world. He starts paying more attention to business and less attention to God and to his soul or her soul. The fact of the matter is that, that God blessed Isaac with his wealth, but God also used it as a rod with which to chasten him. He used it as a rod to get him driven out of the place that he should have left long before. 
And so now he's out, and he's not out on his own, on his own terms. He's out on somebody else's terms. And, and now he's in the countryside with a huge number of animals and a huge number of people, and the people he thought were his friends have plugged up all the wells that his father had dug. And what did Isaac do? Well, it's interesting to note what he didn't do. He didn't go prospecting for new supplies of water, did he? I mean, here's a a crying, urgent need. He needs water, clean water, and lots of it. He didn't send out his servants to drill test sample wells all over the place. He didn't hire an expensive team of hydrologists to act as consultants for his quest to improve the water supplies in the camp. He, He didn't hire an engineering company to pipe in water from some distant lake or pond. No. He looked back to the past, to the experiences of his father as his father walked with God in the land. You see, Abraham was a sojourner in this land, and Abraham, too, had had great herds and great flocks that needed water, and everywhere he went, God provided water for Abraham. Everywhere Abraham and his servants planted their shovels, God blessed them with a well. And so the water was there. All that he needed was there the whole time under the Philistine dirt and debris. So Isaac dug again the wells of his father. He dug again the wells of his father, and he called the wells by their names that his father had given them. That that tells you that the Philistines, not only had had they stopped up the wells, they changed the names too. It's like, where's this well my father dug? Oh, that's not on any map I know of. I have no idea where it's at. Um, It's under there, but I'm not going to tell you. We're going to change the name. So here was a, a vital resource for the preserving of physical life, and all Isaac had to do was remember and dig. I, I want to suggest to you that there is a spiritual application to this earthly story. As was brilliantly mentioned in the children's sermon by some bright child who is well instructed in the things of God. Water is always symbolic in the scripture of the gifts and graces and activities of the Holy Spirit. And this is because the Holy Spirit is to spiritual life in a man or a woman what water is to the physical life of a man or a woman. There's no bodily life without water. And there's no spiritual life without spiritual water. There are Philistines today who are going about casting earth into the wells of living water in God's church. And the church needs these waters to survive and thrive again. But the sources have been cut off by the monkey business of men. They plug up the wells and they give the places where the wells once were new names so the anxious inquirer can't find them even when they go looking. And as a result, the church begins to look like my pathetic little tree over there on the front pew. It begins to wither. It begins to die. Slowly at first, and then at an ever-increasing pace, the church becomes weaker and weaker, and the leaves start drier and drier and fewer and further between. And in her thirst, the church cries out for something to drink. But instead of pure water springing cool from the ground, she's offered monster energy drinks 
and sugary sodas and seawater that increases the thirst until it kills and sometimes even poison. The church is dwindling. The church is dying. What worked in the past, they say, doesn't work anymore. We need to rethink how we're doing things. We need to do X and Y and Z so that the young people will come back. And how are we going to reach this next generation? Because they're not going to be reached by the old ways. Now, I didn't hear it myself, but I was told that somebody stated that the main obstacle to growth at Tabernacle was the color of the walls and the lack of theater seating. That's the whole problem with this church. We, the light blue is awful, and it's dated, but the, the light blue and then these pews. Are, and if we, if we change the color of the walls and we put in theater seating, that's what we need. That'll make it grow. That kind of a view betrays a complete ignorance of what the Bible says about what brings a man or a woman to saving faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that the natural man does not accept the things of God unless the church has grayish walls and shiplap and theater seating and premium coffee. What does the Bible say about what it takes for a human being to come to saving faith in Christ Jesus? 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, you know the verse as well. You should turn to them to make sure they're still in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Here's the kicker. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You cannot find a technique, a method of delivery. You can't find any way to get around the fact that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually discerned and he doesn't have the Spirit. And he's not going to catch the Spirit from grayish walls and theater seating. It's foolishness to think that that's what our future hangs on. You, you don't send your teenager to Sunday school or to youth group, and you don't catechize your children at home. Why? Well, a lot of parents, when you ask them about this, well, they think it's boring. And, and we want them to like church and not to be bored at church. So we only want them to do the things that they like to do, and we hope that someday they'll stumble on something, or if you're doing your job really well, Pastor, you'll give them something that will make them like it, and then everything will be okay. But in the meantime, we're not going to ask them to do anything, to learn anything they don't want to do or they don't want to learn. And I look at them, and I'm like, oh yeah? Is that how you're handling his math education too? Little Billy doesn't like math, and we want him to like school, and so you can only teach Billy the math that Billy likes to do, and you say, okay, what kind of math does Billy like to do? And, and the mother comes back and says, well, he likes the math lessons he gets from Sesame Street. He loves the count. He loves the, the Ladybug Picnic song, but when you do the count, make sure you turn the lights on and off and make the thunder sounds and do the evil laugh. That's his favorite part. And 
you go, but ma'am, he's 17 years old. And he should be doing Algebra 2 and Trig or maybe even Calculus by now. You wouldn't do that to your kid. You'd doom your kid to a lifetime of ignorance of math if you let them only learn what math they felt like learning. The church has raised a couple of generations now of kids who are headed off to college with a theological equivalent of a Cookie Monster lunchbox tucked inside of an Elmo backpack. And, when they, and then we stand back and we wonder why at the age of 20 they've abandoned the faith. They haven't abandoned the faith. They were never taught the faith. But Kent State or Carnegie Mellon will vigorously catechize them in their creed from the moment they step foot on the campus until the moment that they leave. What do we need to do to see the church into the next generation in a position of strength? We need to dig again the wells of our fathers. Now, I don't mean by that we need to resort to the gimmicks that seemed to work in the 80s or the gimmicks that seemed to work in the 70s or the gimmicks that seem to work in the 50s. The church has been long on gimmicks for a long time now. That's part of the reason we're in the mess that we're in. The human techniques will only produce natural results. They'll only produce temporal results. They'll only produce man-sized results. And what's necessary are the things which God has commanded that we use, and that we use them in the way that he has promised to bless in his own way, in his own time, Those are the wells of our fathers. What sorts of things? Well, the right preaching and the active engaged hearing of the word of God. And along with it, the diligent use of the Sabbath day as a day that's devoted to the Lord. It's a tithe of your time. You say, I don't have time to study the Bible. Well, take a Sunday and quit amusing yourself on the Lord's day and spend some time in your Bible prayer, including making use of the corporate prayer meeting of the church, which is this Thursday, by the way, deep study of and application of the scriptures. How about this one? You want a a cold drink of water from God? Humble yourself. Empty yourself of yourself. Die to yourself and say, Lord, fill me. Lord, use me. God's not going to leave that prayer on the table. very long how about a real heartfelt repentance for your own sin rather than refusing to acknowledge it or even defending it depending on who's challenging you how about fasting as you seek God to add I don't know what it is about fasting but I know from experience that when you join fasting and prayer things happen they just do so if you want to try it try it and then get ready stand back and watch because Things will happen. You will be amazed. You might even get arrogant. That's what, I got arrogant one time. It's a true story. So I was fasting, and, and uh, it was when I was living in Sturgis, and, and one of my elders came to me to, to drop something off. I can't remember what it was. And, and uh, he, he said, well, I'm just here, and then I'm going to take my wife, and we're going to have a, a, a nice restaurant meal and a, a theater experience that we've been planning for a long time. And I said, well, that sounds like fun. He says, well, I'm I kind of feeling nauseous. I've been, it's been getting worse all evening, and I'm a little worried that I'm not going to be able to finish out the night. And I said, oh, let me pray for you. So just right there at my front door, I, I just prayed for him that God would take away the nausea and, and give him a, you know, a wonderful time with his wife. And he called me up the next morning. He said, by the time I got back in the car, the nausea was gone. And uh, I never, it never came back. 
And I went, look what I did. And God didn't answer another prayer for the rest of that whole fast. But that's how powerful fasting and prayer are together. Fast as you seek God. Fellowship with other believers that you can sharpen one another and bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the laws of Christ. Most of all, hunger for the presence of God. For the presence of God in your own life, in your own living room and bedroom, but also in our corporate gatherings, our a corporate longing together for God to manifest himself in power among us. Those are the wells that the Philistines have stopped up. Those are the wells. Those are the things that teenagers will want when their hearts are set right by the Holy Spirit. And until our hearts are set right by the Holy Spirit, they won't want them, and that's okay. That's a true indication of what's going on. And when they meet God, and they meet God in a place where they've never met him before, they'll be like, this is holy ground, and I'm coming back here. I'm going to worship this God. I'm going to love this God. I'm going to give my life to this God. And it doesn't matter if the music was written in the 19th century or the 21st century. I'm going to love this God, and I'm going to worship him with his people. That's what happened to me. 15 years old, and all of a sudden I didn't care where it was that I met with God's people or what was going on. I just wanted to be with God's people. That's what will happen to your teenager if you evangelize them properly and the Lord calls them to himself. Those are the wells of our fathers. You and I must go back before we can go forward. We must go back to the things that God has said he will bless. We must go back to the things that God has said are true. We must go back to the things that God has said are right and good. We must go back before we can go forward. You know, the wonderful story is told of Dwight L. Moody, who as a, a Christian man uh, converted and at that point still a shoe salesman. He goes to hear a preacher and the preacher says, the world has not yet seen what God can do with a man who is fully surrendered to him. And Moody said, oh, I want to be that man. And he did his best to be that man with the help of the Holy Spirit. And thousands and thousands and thousands in the U.S. and in Scotland and in England, everywhere else he went, were brought to saving faith in Christ Jesus by this little uneducated shoe salesman whom God got a hold of. The situation that we face today is the same that Isaac faced in the valley of Gerar. We must have water or we will die. Cry out to the Lord. Say, Lord, give me water lest I die. Amen and amen. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock.